I think it's important at times like this, I wonder if you would agree with me, it's important for the response of the church to be a good one. You know, there's, um, I would say, a few times in our lives where we really get a chance to show people what it means to be a Christian, and that this would be one of those times. And our uh, a wrong response at a time like this can be incredibly destructive uh, to the church. And a good response at times like this is something that can really, um, I think, open people's hearts and add maybe a new credibility to the church. And so I believe it's just really important uh, for us to do that. And it's really easy. I wonder if you would agree with me on this. It's really easy to be a Christian on Sunday morning or Sunday night at church. It's almost easier to be a Christian than to not be a Christian in these rooms. Although sometimes I think that when crazy stuff happens in the world, oftentimes we end up like leaving these rooms and forgetting the things that we practice in these rooms. And we end up uh, responding when we don't know how to respond. Oftentimes we end up just parroting what we see in the world and we end up being exactly like them. Instead of being loving, the loving community that we're supposed to be, I think oftentimes we end up being just reactionary, just like the world. I think we end up being uh, bigoted, just like the world. I think we end up being racist, just like the rest of the world. And I think maybe uh, worst of all, I think we become unmerciful, just like the rest of the world, especially towards people that maybe believe differently than us and think uh, differently than us. And I just think that we can do better as the church. And so I, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the response. But before we did that, I just had so many different thoughts and I wrote down pages and pages of stuff that, I mean, I just don't even know the right thing to say, and so this is just so chaotic and disorganized, but I had this next slide. These are things that I want to talk about just super briefly, and then I'll talk about what I believe a Christian response should be at times like this. So the first uh, thing I want to talk about is violence, and if you know me pretty much at all, if you know me well at all, you know that I am somebody who is passionately nonviolent. It's just something that's deep. I, I believe deeply in the teaching, the nonviolent teachings of Jesus Christ. I believe that that's one of the ways that we honor him is by taking his nonviolent message really seriously. And so for me, as somebody who is, just believes this year round, I think oftentimes a, a nonviolent message can seem really idealistic a lot of the year and a lot of different times where it seems like, well, that's really cute, David. That's cute that you would think everyone would get along but it's just not really maybe practical. It's not really the way that it would possibly work in the real world. That's not the way the, the world works. Um, but I believe this, that the Bible teaches us that violence is the way of the beast and that peace is the way of the lamb and that we are to, in all things, we follow the lamb and reject the way of the beast. And so here's what I'm really convinced of more so now than probably I've ever been. I believe this, that violence begets violence, begets violence, begets violence, Gets violence. And this record plays throughout the world, throughout history, generation after generation after generation. And every generation thinks that somehow they're going to break through and that their version somehow of violence is going to be the thing that stops violence. And it never works. It never happens. We always just continue to um, take the bait of every generation and believe that somehow violence is the thing that brings peace. And that's not the way the world works. Um, in fact, you can look no further than the teachings of Jesus uh, to, to see that. You've heard that phrase, of course, violence begets violence. That has originally come, that kind of was like a riff off of the teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of John when he says this, put your sword back in its place for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And it, of course, was really popularized. You all probably know this, it was really popularized in American culture by Martin Luther King Jr. when he said this, violence begets violence, hate begets hate. So I just really think that um, at times like this, um, not to take advantage of it, but for us to take a sober look at our own lives and just realize this, that as Christians, I believe this, uh, peace must be the goal for every Christian. It has to be. There, there, it, um, it's not like a good idea, it's part of who we are is that we are people who believe in the power of peace. Um, and you might be thinking, well, why, why would you say that peace must be our goal? I've just wrote down a few things that I think are... I could write like pages of this stuff, but these are just the things that I had written down. Uh, because we follow the Prince of Peace. That's why peace must be the goal. Uh, because Jesus rejected the war horse and instead rode the ridiculous peace donkey. We talked about that. Because Jesus rejected the sword and picked up the cross. Because Jesus overcame his enemies by laying down his own life. 
because Jesus rejected eye for an eye and instead insisted on turning the other cheek to be struck again and uh, vowed to never retaliate. And of course, we can talk about all sorts of things as far as how that happens. I was talking with my, my friend Jesse just this past week. We can, we can have disagreements on how peace is accomplished. Like we can have disagreements on how we find our way to peace. And there's lots of different opinions there. Some people think that it's much more active. Some people think it's much more passive. And you can, you're, you're free to agree with all of those different things. But peace must be the goal for every Christian. And we have to believe that if our prayer is, we're people who pray, thy kingdom come. We're people who pray like, God, we want this earth to be like heaven. Then our prayer has to be uh, centered around peace. One more Martin Luther King Jr. quote. I just think he sums it up really well. Martin Luther King Jr. says this, violence never brings permanent peace. Do you believe that? Violence never brings permanent peace. It solves no social problem. It merely creates new and more complicated ones. Violence is impractical because it is a descending spiral ending in destruction for all. It is immoral because it seeks to humiliate the opponent rather than win his understanding. It seeks to annihilate rather than convert, which is not the way of Christ. Violence is immoral because it thrives on hatred rather than love. It destroys community and makes brotherhood impossible. That's what we're seeing. It leaves society in monologue rather than dialogue. Violence ends up defeating itself. It creates bitterness in the survivors and brutality in the destroyers. So for every Christian, violence must be the thing that we believe is the problem. And no matter how we believe we are to find our way out of it, we believe that peace is the goal for every Christian. Number two, I'd like to talk about, you go back to my list if you wouldn't mind. Uh, I'd like to talk about politics. I'm going to maybe scare a couple people here. I've prayed about it. I just need to tell you that I, David Eifert, I'm not a Republican. And I'm not a Democrat. I'm not. In fact, in fact, I'll say it like this. At this point in my life, David Eifert, I have all but washed my hands of the political process of America. And not to say that you should do the same thing. You very well shouldn't. I believe that God has called people to be involved in the political process, and that may be you. But uh, I believe that both the Republican agenda and the Democratic agenda are two sides of the same very broken coin, and that they are completely different than the thing that we are supposed to be um, striving towards, which is the kingdom of God. And neither side looks like the kingdom of God. And I know that you like to think that the other side looks nothing like the kingdom of God. Neither side does. It's both... It's both um, they both seek to uh, alienate the other side, and they both seek to create division, whereas the kingdom of God seeks to unite. And so I, I, I really believe this, that my calling as a pastor in this world and in this time, I believe that my calling is to have a ministry that reaches all types of different people, all types of people, Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, whatever it is. And because I believe the world is so politically motivated right now, it has become all but impossible for me to have any political opinion at all. And the reason is this, is because people exalt politics over everything. Everything. There is nothing that people hold more sacred than their politics. And so because of that, people who want to be like me want to be bridge builders. Like we've eliminated the possibility of me having any opinion at all because it is so profoundly um, edgy. It is so profoundly controversial that people who seek to be peacemakers find themselves um, having to distance themselves from both sides. Because the farther we pull from each other, just the more divided we uh, really become. 20 years ago, I'll say it like this, I bet you would all agree with me if you've been around for 20 years. 20 years ago, we enjoyed this time the church did where all of the church, almost all of the church was just totally Republican. Anybody remember that time? I remember that time. And it was like, it was just so easy because it was like, we just felt so good about ourselves because it was like, we were able to take the like Republican way of thinking and the Christian way of thinking and turn them into like a weird baby. And we called it like conservative Christian. And it was great. And everyone who was a church attender, God fearing was a conservative Christian. And it was a huge mistake. And, and, and we're still paying the price for that today. It is, it is when, um, when Christianity gets in bed with politics, when that happens, the church begins to suffer. 
And you can see that historically. The church was always the strongest when it was not picking sides, when it was something that was totally different. But when, but when the church goes and, and they, they end up being on one side versus the other, the church inevitably drops. And people like me and other pastors in my age are paying the price uh, for trying to um, deal with the damage that has been left uh, by people who have alienated huge parts of the nation. Because people, people think that it's like, okay, so if I want to be a church-going person, I have to believe that Jesus is the way and George W. Bush is the greatest president. You know what I mean? And he, he may be, I'm not, I'm not commenting, as you'll recall. But, but if pe- there's people that don't think that. And, so be, and, and there's people who don't think that, and because they don't think that, they feel like they can be part of these communities. And that's a crime, and it's a, it's a huge mistake for us to um, add things to the Christian faith that were never meant uh, to be there. And there just has to be something bigger that unites us together than just, than just politics. There has to be something that is bigger than the, like, you know, you're very well sitting, uh, but right next to somebody who is completely opposite of you politically, in this room especially. We've got, we've got some passionate people on both sides, and I'm friends with both of them passionate people in this room, then there has to be something bigger than our political ideals that unites us together. And so long as we keep politics more important than the rest of the stuff, there's always going to be just brokenness in the church instead of uh, uniting. And so please do not, as I continue to talk and as I continue to, um, I guess, just have this ministry, please do not ever think that I am coming from a politically motivated place because I'm not. I don't care about my politics. I don't even care about your politics. I, let me say it like this. I wish you cared less about your politics. I wish, I wish you cared more about Jesus than your politics. And you might be saying, of course, I, of course. save it. B- because I, I have the internet. You know what I mean? Like, you can tell what you care about by what you have the most conversations about by what you post most about. And if it's like the last time you said anything about Jesus to anyone was 2012, but you have 17 political conversations a day, that's the thing you care more about. And so long as that is always the thing that, that says who's on whose team, it's always gonna be broken. It's always gonna be uh, something that we're always just trying to pick up the pieces instead of actually making any sort of progress. What set Martin Luther King Jr. apart was not his ability to, to post snarky comments on the internet. It was his life. And that he had something, he had something that he believed deep down and he was willing to um, do something about it and not just talk about it. Like everyone has Facebook, okay? And everyone has an opinion about all kinds of things. And it's not, there, there's no act in bravery on like passive aggressively making comments on the internet. There's nothing, that's, that's not activism. It's, it's um, less than nothing. It's just divisive, especially if you're not willing to back that up with actual uh, actions. Okay, are you guys okay? I don't even know if I'm okay. I'm like, having, I'm like, like overheating up here. <laughs> I feel like you guys aren't gonna come back. That's okay. Here we go, third one. <laughs> I guarantee you there's somebody in this room who's like, I'm never coming back. They wanna leave right now. Here we go, labeling. Um, labeling. It feels good to have a scapegoat. It feels good to say, I know the problem. It is those people. It's cathartic. It's like when we feel scared and we feel confused, it's helpful to look at a group of people and decide that they're uh, the problem. It's the liberals. It's Black Lives Matter. It's the police. Um, it's the conservatives, whatever it is. I just, I just really believe this, that labeling is the lazy person's way of pretending that you know more about someone than you really do. You know what I mean? No one is just one thing. No one. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not one thing. You can't say that you understand David if you understand a Christian, because I'm so much more. There's so many different labels that are a part of really, like, who I am. And so long as we have just decided in our own hearts that one particular label is the problem, then we're, we're just being unfair. We don't, want, we don't like it when people do that to us, and so we don't want to do that uh, to other people. Your side will tell you that this is all super simple, and it's not. Like, there's nothing simple uh, happening here. I just, let me just say like this. This whole thing just super, super, super sucks. Like, the whole thing. 
And there's never like, there's just one reason. Uh, what, there's, just, there's not one thing that's happening here. There's a lot of things happening. And your ability to follow Christ will lead you towards empathy, even with people you don't agree with. And, and your ability to be able to see things, not just from your point of view, but also other people's point of view, is one of the things that happens when you start following Jesus Christ. And so I, I, be, I really believe this, that when it comes to this past week in America, I just think that we should all be equally ashamed. You know what I mean? Like, like who on earth has any room to be bragging right now? There, there, was like, there, is, no, there is no heroes here. There's just a whole lot of victims and a whole lot of... Um, a whole lot of brokenness. And no matter what side politically or ideologically you come from, uh, your side is screwing up bad. And everyone should be able to admit that. And with that comes a certain degree of uh, humility. And if we were to ask ourselves, like, why all of this stuff is happening, um, I think you would have to, if, if you're not being just, like, emotional about it, and you're not like, well, I'll tell you the problem, it's the police. Like, if you were to, to just, like, step back a little bit, and say, what's really happening here? What, what is really broken? You would have to admit that the reason that this is happening is because we have this deep systemic sin that has been able to exist under the water for far too long here. And, and, and I, I believe this, even in my own heart, that there are things that are even on the inside of me that contribute to um, people feeling divided and apart from each other and feeling, like, feeling the need to pick sides um, and how this is just the extreme version of, of so many things that are bro- that's broken in all of us. So, okay, so was that violence, politics, labeling? Okay, so here's our response. Wow, that was long. Okay, here's our response. Um, I believe, so, if, so this is what I wrote. So if towing the party line is completely unacceptable for a Christian, and it is, uh, what should our response be? So our response, um, I believe, is this. Our first response is this, we mourn. Uh, we mourn... Um, Paul said this in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep. You know, when Jesus came upon this tragedy, he came upon a family friend who had died. Uh, His first response was to enter into their pain and to weep with those who are weeping. Other people came in with judgment. Other people came in with harsh opinions. But Jesus' first response was simply uh, to weep. So we as Christians, our first response in all of this is our hearts break with those people who are hurting. It doesn't matter if they're on the different side as us or not. The fact that they're hurting means that that's real to us and we mourn with those who are mourning. And it's not just the people who are just directly involved. You know what I mean? It's not just, it's not just the people who were killed and it's not just the people who uh, are related to the people who are killed or even in those communities. There's people across the nation right now, our black brothers and sisters, our brothers and sisters in uniform that feel like uh, their safety has been ripped from them. And so they're, they're walking around in fear uh, when, they're, when they shouldn't be like that. And so not just for the people who have been killed, not just for the people who are related to those people, but for the whole nation who feels this unsettling and this sense of dread, we mourn with those people. This is my next slide. I think that sums, up, sums it up well. Our first response is we mourn with all those who are mourning. That's our starting point. And then what do we do, what do, we do after we mourn or while we mourn? The answer should be obvious, but I know it's not. Our response should be to pray. I believe that that is something that's fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. Let me ask you a question. If you'd be able to um, think back this past week in your own life, um, in the midst of all your processing of all of this, how long did it take you to pray? I believe that some people in this room probably prayed right away. I believe that some people probably like spent some time on the internet and then prayed I'm sure there's some people in here that have yet to pray. But as long as we believe that we are more effective in fighting than we are in praying, we're missing who we're supposed to be here. And so we mourn and we pray. And of course, we can do more than mourn and pray, but not until we mourn and pray. What it means to be a follower of Christ is we enter into the pain of other people and we mourn with them and we pray for them. So after that, what do we do? Well, I just say like this, I think that we become the change that we want to see, or maybe a really simple way would, 
uh, to say that would be this. We remember the golden rule. We've known it our entire life, but we come and we treat people the way that we would like to be treated. And if, if you're not sure sometimes what that means, I, I'm really glad this past week, it seems like the prayer of St. Francis that we confess in here often has kind of begun to circle around a little bit, and I'm really grateful for that. I, I think we'll read it at the end of the service also, but I want to read it just briefly to you. Here's the golden rule for you. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, let me sow hope. Where there is darkness, let me sow light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I might, may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. That I may not so much seek to be understood as to understand. Listen, did you hear that one? That's a good one. Uh, I may not so much seek to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying to self that we are born to eternal life. Can you say amen? Okay. All right, here we go. We've got a text tonight that we're going to get into. That feels like a whole sermon. I feel like we should go home. Okay. It's heavy, I know. I love you guys. Okay, our, our text, our title, let me, let me say our title was Burn Them or Bless Them. Our text tonight is Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. The story goes like this. As the time uh, drew near for him to ascend to heaven, talking about Jesus, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Uh, here, uh, let's see. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? Uh, But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Okay, so um, let me say it like this, my next slide. And this is not, this isn't directly about what has happened this past week. I'm happy about that. But I do think it very much um, uh, brings awareness to how we as Christians respond to lots of different things. So here's the question, we li- or uh, look, an introductory statement. We live in a world where competing religions and ideologies make competing truth claims. Uh, don't you know this, that... This, in, the entire world is not Christian in religion. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and there's many religions, and many of those religions make absolute truth claims. Other religions will hold equally absolute claims about the way the world works that are incompatible with our absolute truth claims. You ever notice that? You ever come across that issue? Um, And so here's the question. What should our response be towards people who make absolute truth claims that contradict our absolute truth claims? And the question is this. Do we burn them or do we bless them? Before you rush to your answer, let me say this, that for Christians historically, this has not been a foregone conclusion, Um, So in Luke chapter 9, the text that we just read, we we read a little bit about the Samaritans. The Samaritans, and you all know this, they are different ethnically and religiously than the Jews. And so there was a lot of hatred between God's chosen people, the Israelites, and the Samaritans, the Jews. You could say it's really similar in a lot of ways to modern-day Israelis and Palestinians. It's very similar. Even the geography is very similar. But there's just this deep-seated conflict. And so the disciples come to this village and they assume that Jesus has shared um, their animosity towards uh, the Samaritans. They assume that obviously Jesus hates them the same way that they hate them. Jesus and the disciples have uh, come. They are heading towards Jerusalem and they're heading towards Jerusalem for uh, a Passover celebration. This is a Jewish uh, celebration that's happening. And so they, they go to this Samaritan village and the Samaritan village does not welcome them. They're not allowed to come in. And the reason is uh, a religious reason. The reason that they don't welcome them in is because they realize that these guys are heading to Jerusalem for Passover, and they want nothing to do uh, with these Jewish people. So James and John come. They're two of the disciples, and they are nicknamed. Does anyone know the nicknames of James and John in the Bible? Extra credit. Sons of Thunder. Jesus nicknames them uh, because they're very fiery guys. They're very uh, intense. And so when they are refused hospitality, uh, get what, you know what happens? Here's what happens, which I think is very weird. Uh, They quote the Bible. 
They end up quoting, and specifically, they end up quoting the Bible, and they're quoting Elijah from the Old Testament. Uh, They believed they had biblical right to use violence against religious, national, and ethnic enemies. They believed that they had the right to use violence against those. They basically said this, well, Elijah called down fire from heaven to burn up his religious enemies. Is there any way that we can call down fire, perhaps in the same way as Elijah did? And Jesus comes and he rebukes them. And basically what Jesus says is this, you don't even realize how dark your heart has become. He says, I didn't come to destroy lives. He says, I came to save lives. Uh, here's what I wrote. What attitude should we have towards people of other religions and worldviews when we know that their religion or worldview is in direct opposition to our Christian absolute truth? And what the uh, solution is not is just to cave, to cave in and like totally abandon all of our beliefs. Say, you know, religions are all pretty much the same. You know, they're just tiny little, like that's not true. They're not. And so we don't say that because religions are uh, profoundly uh, different, and Christianity is utterly unique in so many different ways. So uh, does being on the right side of absolute truth justify violence in attitude or even action? Well, if we were to look at the Bible, specifically certain sections of the Old Testament, the answer would appear to be yes, that we could use uh, violence uh, with people who contradict our absolute truth claims. Uh, but if we listen to Jesus and let his words reign supreme, then the answer is clearly no. And so even in the Bible, we have this tension between the Old Testament and the things that Jesus uh, said. And uh, what are we to do with that? I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, have, you ever, have you ever like read some Jesus and you feel good and then you go to the Old Testament and like... You know, God is like smashing the people together and it's just, it's just disturbing. Well, here's what, I, uh, here's what I wrote. This is a statement that at least to me, this is how I clear that up. Uh, the Old Testament takes us on a long journey that leads us to Jesus. And we have not arrived at absolute truth until we arrive at Jesus. In other words, we could say this, we have not arrived at absolute truth when we find our way to Moses. We have not arrived at absolute truth yet. We have not arrived at absolute truth when we find our way to David or to Elijah. They're part of the journey. They're part of the journey that ultimately leads us to Jesus, but we haven't arrived at absolute truth because we don't have Jesus yet. Um, And I think in a lot of ways, that kind of instructs our relationship with some of those Old Testament stories. Um, Because we, we, we take them for what they are and we let them off the hook for what they are not supposed to be which is the way that teaches us how to be followers of Jesus Christ. It's just not what that is. Uh, they, are, they are showing us the story of the people of Christ as we eventually find our way uh, to Jesus. So they're talking about, remember, Elijah the Tishbite. Remember Elijah? We're talking, he's the guy that calls fire down from heaven. Uh, let me just tell you a tiny bit about Elijah. He is a very irritable, and he's a sometimes violent. He's sometimes very depressed Um, he's a prophet. There's one time that we find him curled up under a bush praying that God would kill him. It's kind of the guy that he is. He's like a loner, Elijah is. He's an amazing prophet, but uh, he wouldn't want to hang out with you, which is fine because you wouldn't want to hang out with him either. That's just the kind of guy uh, he was. And so we, we read about him in 2 Kings chapter 1. And basically what has happened is this. There's this guy. He's the king. He's the king of Samaria. And it's a guy that it's very clear that Elijah cares nothing for. And so this guy has suffered a fall. He's, he's fallen and he's hurt himself. And he's not sure if he's going to live or if he's going to die. So he's trying to find out the fate of himself. Like, am I going to die from this uh, injury or not? So he knows that Elijah is a prophet. So he calls for Elijah and has him uh, come. What he does is he gets a captain and 50 soldiers and says, go get Elijah for me. So they find Elijah and he's sitting on a hill and the captain says to Elijah, he says this, oh man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. So Elijah says uh, this, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down and burn up you and your 50. And boom, it happens. The 51 men are killed. 
the report finds its way back to the king and the king tries to do the same thing again. He gets another captain, he gets another 50 to go and they say the, the, the exact same thing. Oh man of God, this is the king's order, come down quickly. And Elijah again turns and says to them, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down and burn up you and your 50. Boom, it happens again. All 51 men are consumed with fire. So the king, undeterred after he hears this, he decides he gets a third captain and 50 more men. And needless to say, the captain is very unsure about the plan. You know what I mean? He's not pumped on the mission. Uh, and so when he finds his way to Elijah, instead of saying the same thing, he just, he just kneels down and begs Elijah for mercy. God, just give me mercy. And so Elijah, he looks at him and he finally relents. He backs off. He, eventually he says, fine, I'll go. And he goes and talks to the king. He arrives at the king and tells the king, yeah, you're going to die. And the king dies. So that's the whole story. That's the story of Elijah um, and the 50 calling fire down from heaven. So back to James and John in the New Testament. They love this story. This is like their favorite Bible story. And so they go and they suggest this story uh, to Jesus. Jesus rebukes them and says, you're of the wrong spirit. So they believe that Jesus is willing to resort to violence in the end, and they're, of course, wrong. But why was this a wrong thing to do? Like, why, why wouldn't you be justified to use the Bible to tell, you know, why is that wrong? Because Elijah is not the end of the story. Jesus is. And I think what is so amazing about this story and James and John is that it, they had more to choose from than just Elijah. They had lots of stories they could have chosen from. They chose Elijah. They could have chose others. For example, a really good one that I think they should have chose was Elisha. Y'all know Elisha and Elijah, two guys in the Bible, not the same guy. Uh, Elisha is the successor so the guy that comes after Elijah. And the Bible makes it pretty clear that Elisha is actually greater. It says this, that Elijah got the double portion of Elijah. And so there, uh, Elisha, on the other hand, he also has an encounter with an army that's trying to take him. And uh, this story, you find it in 2 Kings chapter 6. Uh, basically what's happening here is Israel and Syria, well, they are in a war. And so Elisha, the prophet, what's weird about Elisha is he ends up getting this foreknowledge so he ends up, like he knows where the enemy armies are going to go before they go there. And so even though the Israelite armies are really small, they're winning like crazy because Elisha tells them like, set up your armies here. Don't set up your armies there because he knows where the enemy armies are going to set up. So eventually the king of Syria, the enemy, uh, he finds out what's happening and he wants to have a conversation with this guy, uh, Elisha. So instead of sending just 50 men, this time the king of Syria sends an entire army to go get Elisha. Uh, so a whole army. We don't know how many people. It doesn't say how many, but maybe 1,000, 2,000, 10,000. We don't know. A um, whole army to go and get one man. So they arrive and they, sur they surround Elisha's house. And here's what happens. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 15. When the servant of the man of God, so this is Elisha's servant, got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Don't be afraid, Elisha, the prophet told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. And that's a weird thing to say because there was just two of them. He says, one, two, one, two. There's just two of us. And there's like 10,000 of them. Uh, and he says this, and Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. So this is an angelic army that is supporting Elisha. As the Syrian army advanced towards him, Elisha, the prophet, prayed, O Lord, please make them blind. That's what he's praying. He's praying that they would be struck temporarily uh, blind. So the Lord struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Then Elisha went out and told them. Remember, they're trying to, they're, they're trying to get Elisha. You're clear on that? So here's what Elisha says. You have come the wrong way. This isn't the right city. Follow me and I will take you to the man you are looking for. He's lying because he, they're looking for Elisha but they're blind, so they don't know. And so he just says, you've got the wrong place, and just follow me, and I'll show you where to go. And he led them to the city of Samaria, which is the capital of the Israelite army. So basically, he's taking them right where they don't want to go. Okay, so here we go. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha prayed, Lord, now open up their eyes and let them see. 
So the Lord opened their eyes and they discovered that they were in the middle of Samaria, disaster. So this enemy army was certainly gonna be killed because they have been led right into the middle of their enemy's capital. Uh, when the king of Israel saw them, he shouted to Elisha. He's going to be happy. He said, he said, my father, should I kill them? Should I kill them? Uh, and Elisha says this, of course not. Do we kill prisoners of war? Give them food and drink and send them home again to their master. So the king made a great feast for them and then sent them home to their master. After that, the Syrian raiders stayed away from the land of Israel. So this is an amazing uh, story in that Elijah, when he is going to be captured, he calls down fire and burns them up. But the man who comes after him, who is greater than him, instead of calling down fire from heaven, he ends up gathering them around and preparing a feast for them. And one of these two things produced peace and the other produced more war. Which do you think was which? It was calling down fire from heaven produced more war. And it was when Elisha instead cooks a feast for his enemies that the Bible says the raiders stayed away. This was when uh, there was finally peace in the war. I think that's an amazing story. Finally, finally, they find their way to peace when instead of burning their enemies, they bless their enemies and God brings peace. So why would James and John, like why wouldn't they use that story? Why wouldn't they use that story as inspiration? Why wouldn't, like, they're, they're both in the Bible. They're both right there, like right next to each other. Um, I believe this is the reason that the story of Elijah calling down fire from heaven agreed with the hatred that was already in their own hearts. So they loved that story. They loved the idea of their enemies getting what was coming to them. It, don't you understand? Like, it doesn't feel good to, like, make dinner for your enemies. It makes good to watch them suffer. And so that's why they choose um, the story. They immediately go to Jesus and say, should we burn them? They don't go to Jesus immediately and say, like, should we cook these guys dinner? Should we, should we create a feast for these guys and so find our way to peace? Um, and which of those two options do you think is more the style of Jesus? The, uh, the answer is this, uh, a feast, a feast with his enemies. You can see throughout the life of Jesus that he's always making dinner companions of people that should be uh, his enemies. So if the question is this, do we burn them or do we bless them in the light of Jesus Christ? Undoubtedly, the answer is this, we bless them. You can see this throughout the entire Bible. Romans chapter 12, verse 14 through 16. It says this, Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God would bless them. That's like one of the most brutal scriptures of all time. Bless those who persecute you. Does anyone think that Christians are under persecution these days? Of course they are. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Uh, Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. I love that one. I love that part. I, I, I echo this often in this ministry is that we should all have the ability to say this when it comes to almost everything in our own life. I could be wrong. Such a healthy thing to be able to say. Yeah, I, you, know, you know, I could be wrong. Like I really feel this and this and this and this, but you know, I, I could be wrong. Don't you know that we all have wrong ideas in our head right now? We all have, our brain is like one weird bowl of soup that is comprised of both correct and wrong ideas right now. Would you, would you admit that you have wrong ideas in your head right now that you believe are right? I will. I have lots of things that I think are right that are actually wrong. And I just, the problem is I just don't know which ones are which right now. Otherwise, I'd fix it. Otherwise, I would change my opinion. But I do have in my head right now, I have right ideas and wrong ideas. And you're the same way. And with that comes a generous slice of humility. You know what I mean? We're not so strong um, in our, I am positive that I am right about absolutely everything. Instead, we have this uh, beautiful humility about ourselves that says, I could be wrong because I'm still learning and I'm still growing. Uh, Verse 17, Paul says this, never pay back evil with more evil. Sounds like Martin Luther King Jr., huh? Uh, Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Continuing on, Uh, Dear friends, never take revenge. Uh, Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. So he's saying this. It's not your responsibility uh, to, to have revenge or retaliate. Verse 20. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. Sound like Elijah or Elisha. 
If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their head. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So our task as Christians in times like this that we find ourselves in is this. Our task is to always love above all else. Our task is to always love. Uh, um, And again, Christianity makes absolute truth claims. We think that there are huge amounts of people that are totally wrong about huge amounts of stuff. Like, does everybody agree that there are absolute truth claims in the Christian faith? There's a ton of them. Like, we believe in the Trinity, and we believe that everyone who says there's not a Trinity is wrong. We believe that Jesus is God, and anyone who says Jesus is not God is wrong. So we have absolute truth claims, and we must make them. But let me say it like this. I think this is an interesting idea. Absolute truth claims are inherently dangerous. Again, we must make them. We have to have them. We have to have absolute truth claims, but absolute truth claims are very, uh, diff- uh, are very dangerous, and I'll tell you why in my next slide. Once you believe you have the absolute truth, it's easy to justify any and all actions in the name of absolute truth. Have you seen that in history? My next slide, maybe, maybe this. Belief in absolute truth is behind both jihad and the crusades. Uh, uh, you all probably know this, but 9-11 was religiously motivated. Um, of, of course, most, most people in, the majority of people in those religions would say that that was a distortion of that religion. But still, 19 hijackers who were not boys, they were not angsty boys, they were middle-aged, middle-class people that trained. They learned how to fly planes for Pete's sake, so, just so that they could go onto a plane and murder uh, pilots and flight attendants and go and fly these planes and murder thousands of innocent people. Well, how can you do that? It's easy so long as you believe you have absolute truth on your side. It's easy if you believe that you have absolute truth on your side. Uh, Belief in absolute truth is also behind the Crusades. And I'm sure you're probably more familiar with 9-11 than you are with the Crusades that's not surprising. We don't like to talk about the Crusades. We don't like to talk about our greatest failures as uh, Christians, but people of other religions and the critics of Christianity are well aware of the Crusades. So I just want to talk to you maybe briefly about the first crusade. There's lots of crusades, but the first crusade I want to talk to you about, it began in the year 1095. The objective was this, that we were going to get these Christian soldiers and we were going to march into Jerusalem, the holy city, and liberate it from the infidel, the Muslim, who had taken it over. So there was these preachers, and they were all around, and they were rallying people. They were rallying about, around this cry, man, we're just going to take back the holy city for God. We're going to take back. So people need to rise up, stand up for God, stand up for Jesus. It's time to fight for truth. And famous preachers uh, were saying this. And so, so they amassed this huge army that were the crusaders. And so they start to head to Jerusalem. And on their way towards Jerusalem, they end up massacring 12,000 Jews. Uh, It's what's known as the Rhineland Massacres. Uh, uh, Why? Because they didn't confess Jesus as Lord. So basically, they didn't uh, agree with our absolute truth. So we felt justified in slaughtering them. And I just think it's interesting that uh, the Jews had nothing to do with any of this. Like Like they had nothing to do. I just feel like the Jews almost always, end up getting this insanely bad end of the sick. They had nothing to do with any of this. This was our beef with the Muslims who had taken over Jerusalem. But we, we were just so riled up. You know what I mean? The, the Christians were just so pumped up on Jesus Christ that they decided they were going to slaughter 12,000 people uh, that had nothing to do with it before they even got out of Europe. And it's not our brightest moment. So we finally arrive at the Holy Land. We have a series of battles against uh, the Muslims. And by year 1099, so this is four years later, uh, Jerusalem, we have finally succeeded. Jerusalem is under siege. The first crusade is the only crusade that by any stretch of the imagination is successful. Like they weren't successful in showing us Jesus, but they were successful in what they were trying to do and that they got back Jerusalem. So on July 15th, the year 1099, the Muslim armies in Israel, surrendered. 
they laid down their weapons. And so they, they were all, they, they realized that they had lost, and so they laid down their weapons and they surrendered to the Christians. They were all seeking refuge in the Al-Aqsa, Al-Aqsa Mosque. You can actually go uh, see it to this day. It still stands. I have a picture. This is, it's a huge place. It goes on. It's gigantic. And the Christian crusaders went in to where there was 10,000 unarmed Muslims and massacred every single one of them. Every single one of them. And I just think, like, how can you do that? Well, it's easy. As long as you believe you have absolute truth on your side, as long as you believe that you are the one fighting for God, you can do anything. You do anything you want. Like, history shows us that the greatest tragedies in the world have been people who believe that they're fighting for God and absolute truth. And so that's why uh, absolute truth is inherently dangerous. Again, we believe in absolute truth. We must. It's part of what makes us us. We believe in absolute truth, but we, uh, we also recognize that it's very dangerous. So how do, we keep, how do we keep absolute truth from becoming horrifically dangerous? This is what I wrote. I believe this. How do we keep absolute truth from becoming horrifically dangerous? We stress love as our highest value and pledge to never do harm in the name of God. And if everyone who had absolute truth would somehow agree that what we, what we believe is we believe the highest value is love and we pledge to never do harm in the name of God, it would instantly change the world. Even if all Christians would magically agree to this, it would change the world uh, forever. I think it's more important now than ever simply because like technological advances just make it easier for us to kill each other. You know what I mean? Like, like a thousand years ago, you had to go to the Holy Land to slaughter them. But now you don't have to. So like, it's more important than ever that we as people who believe in absolute truth also stress love as our highest value. And we pledge to never harm people uh, in the name of God. Uh, we just have to um, realize this, this, this is what I believe is our choice in the 21st century. Next slide. Either we renounce violence in the name of God or renounce religion as being too dangerous. I think that's just true. I think it's hard to swallow, but I think it's true. That either we renounce violence in the name of God, or renounce religion as being too dangerous. History tells us that if we continue on in the way of absolute truth, justifying whatever wickedness we have in our own hearts, that eventually we're going to destroy each other. Because we're getting better at it. And unless we change, uh, that's... Just the thing, and, and people, I'll tell you, I read quite a bit of atheist writing. I just think it's good for me and my heart as a Christian. I want to hear what they think, but one thing that I think atheists will say is that religion is too dangerous in a modern world with modern weaponry. And I believe that they have a very strong argument. They really do, because, I mean, my gosh, think about, think about like, if the Nazis would have had nuclear bombs, like, what, you know what I mean? What do you think, like, where are we going with, with this if, if, we, if we can't change as we get better and better and more powerful and more powerful if we can't change? Um, it's just doom. And so I believe this, unless we stress love as our highest value and pledge to never do harm in the name of God. We must, we must assure our critics and our, our enemies, our religious enemies, that the worst we will do, if you do not agree with me, I'm going to have a conversation with you and I'm going to try to persuade you that Jesus is Lord. And if you don't agree with me, the worst thing I'm going to do is cook you dinner. You know what I'm saying? I, I, if you don't agree with me at the end of the day, I will not mock you. I will not scorn you. I will not shame you. And I most certainly will not harm you. But what I will do is I'll make you dinner just like Jesus. And so think about this, I'm just about done, but if we were to, if you were to ever talk to someone and someone were to reject Christianity because of the Crusades, there's a lot of people that reject Christianity because of the Crusades. So let's say you were to talk to one and they say, well, I don't, you know, Christian, Christianity is pretty much where you go around the world and you slaughter people uh, who don't agree with you. So what would you say to that? 
you'd probably say something, if you were like me, you'd probably say, that's not real Christianity. I'd say, I'd say they just didn't get it right. You know what I mean? Like they, they thought they understood Christianity and they didn't understand Christianity at all. That wasn't real. My next slide, this is why. It's not fair to compare the best of your religion with the worst of another religion. Now just notice what you just agreed to. It's not fair to compare the best of your religion with the worst of another religion. You don't like it when people do it to you, so we don't do it to other people. Do you, know what I'm, do you hear what I'm saying? We, we like to remember 9-11 and forget the Crusades. They like to remember the Crusades and forget 9-11. And neither of us compare, in our effort to love each other, neither of us compare their worst with our best. So if you're talking to a Muslim, what you don't do is suggest that all Muslims are terrorists because you can find some Muslims that were. That would be the same as saying all Christians are bloodthirsty crusaders because you can find some Christians that were. We don't compare the best of our religion with the worst of theirs. So what do we do? Uh, This is a long way to return back to this. We simply remember the golden rule and we treat them the way that we want to be treated. And if we want people to treat us with respect and dignity and honor, we look to them and we treat them with respect and dignity and honor. And in so doing, we increase the kingdom of God. We advance the kingdom of God and we play our part in changing the world. So as we close tonight, we're going to prepare for a communion. If I get the band to come up, or just keys or whatever. Um, I guess I want to, to, as we close, just make this a tiny bit more about your everyday lives. Um, like I said at the beginning, I just think that no one in the room has any place to be boastful right now. And where we are is a place where we have shown that we don't understand each other. And we are continually at a place where we need God's grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. And I believe that what a, an appropriate response for a Christian to do, even at a moment like this, is to examine your own heart and find those places on the inside of you that even in small ways contribute to the brokenness and the division that we're seeing the fruit of right now. Like, what is it in me that contributes to the brokenness of the world? Like, what is it in me that would, would encourage people in their anger and hatred towards one another instead of their love for each other? And so, so it's just appropriate to look at the world, but also to look at yourself, too. I have a quote, Thomas uh, Merton. He was a Catholic writer, early 20th century. He says this, so instead of loving what you think is peace, hear this, hear, this, uh, hear this Democrats. Instead of loving what you think is peace, love others and love God above all. And instead of hating the people you think are war makers, hate the appetites and the disorder in your own soul, which are the causes of war. If you love peace, then hate injustice, hate tyranny, hate greed, but hate those things in yourself, not in another. Oh, that we would be able to look at ourselves and see how we contribute to things that are bigger than us. Oh, that we would be able to look at our own lives and our prayer would be, God, comfort them and forgive us. That I've, I've prayed that prayer a hundred times these last five days. God, comfort them and forgive us. And comfort, comfort them and forgive us for all of those Ways that we contribute to what's broken here. Like, forgive us for all the times when we think this is so simple and it's just like, it's because those, and it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not about just those, it's, that's a scapegoat. It's not about that. It's about, it's about us trying to find ways to love and respect each other. Yes, we have differences of opinion. Yes, we have differences in absolute truth claims, but we must find ways to respect each other. We must find ways to forgive each other. We must even find ways to love each other. And in doing so, we're able to contribute to healing instead of hatred. 
And when people see me, David Eifert, when people see me, would God use me as a reason that people would not, they wouldn't use my words for another reason to fight, but they would use my life as maybe a reason to open their hearts to the idea of peace. You know what I mean? Like when you think about David, maybe my prayer would not be that you would argue more, but that I would be an encouragement to you to find your way to peace and find your way to understanding with people that are even very different than you. And God use me and God use a community like this to heal the world. You guys can go ahead and pass. like to read uh, Prayer of St. Francis one more time. So I hope you would, um, it's not even too hard to commit this to prayer or to memory, excuse me, this prayer. um, I just think it's beautiful and I think it's important. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, let me sow light. And where there is sadness, let me sow joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand. Grant that I may not so much seek to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying to self that we are born to eternal life. So Jesus Christ, one more time, uh, once again we come to your table, completely undeserving of your grace and your kindness and your healing. But Father, we come all the same because you invite us. And so we receive you. And we remember you. And we plead and vow once again in our hearts Um, to follow after you 
even when that's hard, even when that makes us look so different than the world. We vow to follow after you and you alone. Forgive us for all of the things that we do that contributes to this broken and fallen world. We want to be an agent for good. We want to be an agent for positive change. Help us to not be so reactionary, but instead to be moved with compassion for even those who who think so differently than us. May we find ways to unify and not separate. We thank you, Lord. Tonight, Father, we remember your death. We proclaim your resurrection and we await your return. We remember your death. We proclaim your resurrection and we await your return. So let's eat the bread and drink from the cup together. Father, as we leave tonight, we can't leave without saying a prayer uh, for this nation and the people involved in all of these tragedies. Lord, we believe that you're the Prince of Peace. And when there is, when you look around and there's nothing but darkness, we believe that you come and bring light. And so we pray for our brothers and sisters that are living in fear, living in despair, living in sorrow. We believe that you're teaching us how to treat each other. We believe that you're teaching us how to come together and to love each other as you love us. So help us. We say thank you for that. We're grateful. In your son's name we pray. Amen.